0: Well, it is a pleasure and joy to open the Word uh, with you this morning. And uh, it's also a joy that this is not the first time we've opened the Word together this morning already. Right? We've gotten to review our memory verse. We heard Pastor read a passage that we'll be looking at this morning. And we've sang a lot of biblical truths in our songs. We heard little children sing them too. And I don't know if you noticed how eager they were to rush out. It almost makes me like feel like I'm missing out on something, you know. Like maybe I'm in the wrong group. Maybe I should jump down there and run out with them. Uh, but it, it's really been a joy. In, in a way, I feel like last month I I went through the moving up process, uh, and, and I, I got the I left Tabernacle Express, and now I'm teaching adult Sunday school. And uh, there's a lot of different dynamics with that. Uh, but the the key thing that connects the two is not just what we're studying in scripture together, uh, but, but the focal point, the emphasis we put on Christ and his word uh, with all the children's programs and the adult programs that we follow. So uh, that's the source of encouragement. That's the source of comfort. And ultimately, that's what's going to unify us together. Uh, if you've ever had a conversation with another person, and I'm assuming most of you have spoken to another individual You'll quickly notice that within that conversation, we will form alternative opinions and thoughts on the same topic, okay? And, uh, and it, it, you start to realize how difficult unity can become. How do we create a culture and community of unity when there's so much diversity within just our thoughts, our opinions, our desires, our fears, our wishes? And so this is a, a very perplexing component, something that counselors work very hard to try to figure out. How do we help people feel unified as an individual, feel united in a community, part of something in relationship? Uh, so this is, this is a major challenge. And uh, some of the interesting things we look at scripture here is we're going to see how God takes uh, his word and communicates to us principles, values, even a plan on how to live united uh, under him. Uh, so that's kind of where we're going to go this morning. Uh, real quickly, to give a, a little uh, background to where we've been, uh, many of you know that uh, I've, this is uh, my third uh, message on unity. We started uh, way back in February or March. It was when, uh, the first one. And I focused on uh, unity That multiplies grace and peace. And in that one, we focused on the individual. How do I become an individual who promotes unity? All right? Uh, and, And we saw in 2 Peter 1 key elements about promoting unity. And the fruit of someone who's promoting unity is frequently multiplying grace and peace. In the life of others and in their own life. So, this aspect of Paul challenging people to multiply, allow grace and peace to be multiplying, and that you would multiply it in the life of others. And then, uh, just last, uh, actually, it was in July, so it's a little over a month now, uh, we focused on unity and faithful family stewardship. And so we looked at what are some biblical principles we can see applied to help strengthen unity within a family unit. So we got a, a little larger. We went from the individual to the family and we, we cross over some of those principles that applied as far as unifying the family in your home also transferred to unifying the family of God. And the central point for that was that worshiping God would be the focus. All right, and that's going to be key as we look at the passage today and as we continue this conversation. That if we want to find unity in the body of Christ, then we're going to have to focus our attention on the worship of God. And we'll see how that is accomplished here in Ephesians uh, 4. Uh, as I wrestled through uh, this passage, you'll be glad to know that I cut my message in half. Because I have a second opportunity to speak in October. So I realized very quickly that I was not going to attain what I wanted to attain. Uh, so I cut it in half. And, and one of the primary reasons was I, f- I found myself asking a question. As I reflected and kept reading over Ephesians 4. Especially Ephesians 4 verse 1. And, and, and as I read through that, uh, I, I was wondering um, a little bit about this calling that it highlights. Uh, but first I want to emphasize the big idea. All right? So what we're going to take away from this morning is that unity should ultimately define the culture of Christian community. All right? And what we're going to see re-emphasized in the passage this morning is that unity is a key element. It should be one of the fruits of uh, Christian community. So this is, this is a critical element for moving forward. And so we see here in Ephesians 4 1 that there is a worthy calling for the church. Alright, so I'll read that verse and let's, let's ponder that a little bit. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. Two questions came to my mind. What are we called to? What is he ultimately calling us to? And what makes it so worthy? Okay? Why, why should I be challenged to walk in a manner worthy of what this is called to. And if we had started off in Ephesians 1, we would see this progression of the gospel continually brought to bear. We would see the term called jump out multiple times. We would see grace come out multiple times. We would see unity come out multiple times. So, so Paul has been building on this theological concept centered around the gospel and how the gospel ultimately transforms the way we do relationships. And he'll eventually get to cover a number of different dynamics, which we'll hit on in October, on what th- how that changes in different relational elements that we might face. But at the core of this was the gospel, okay? And, and so with that in mind... As Paul is trying to bring it into an application element as to what this looks like if we have heard the gospel, if we received the gospel, what does this start to translate into? Uh, we see that ultimately in verse three of what, what we're being called to in verse three is that it emphasizes that we are called to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. We are called to walk in unity. And then the second element of that that I saw is that Paul, here in verse 1, is saying that he's writing to us from prison. So we are called to walk in unity and to be willing to suffer for unity. So I want to expand on those two concepts uh, for a few minutes. So called to maintain unity. One thing I appreciated as uh, we've been doing our Roman study on Wednesday evening Uh, This week, in Romans 6, verses 15 to 23, we looked at a process at play amongst the believers. And this was similar to this process. When you think of walking, walking requires steps, okay? Multiple steps. You can't stand and be considered walking. So there's a progression, there's a plan, there's a process in play, all right? In Romans 6, we also saw a very similar process. And the Paul was challenging people Don't you know that you're enslaved to the individual you obey? So they contrasted obeying sin or obeying God. And based upon where you placed your obedience, based upon where you chose to walk, that's where your allegiance was. That's the master that you fed into. And there's a progression to the consequences and impact from that. So we're called to maintain a unity. We have to choose to walk. The believer even as we've accepted Christ as our Savior, we still daily have to make a decision whether we're going to obey that calling, whether we're going to walk in a manner worthy of that calling, or whether we're going to choose to turn back to sin and to walk in a sinful path. And so I know that that we don't just automatically default, even as Christians, we don't automatically default to obeying God. If we did, would Paul have to challenge us to walk in a manner worthy? Think about that. If that was our default position, why would Paul be challenging the believers to walk in a manner worthy? Okay? So there's this challenge here from Paul, which means that this is not an easy task, nor is it the autopilot format for a believer, but that this is a decision we have to continually practice and put into play uh, to follow through this process as we seek God uh, and choose to walk in a manner worthy Uh, and I noticed another component not only do we see this pattern show up in Romans 6 but as I reflected on some of the other passages I shared in 2 Peter 1 we saw another element here where Paul or Peter this time was challenging the believers not to become ineffective once again You have an apostle speaking to a Christian audience, warning them of the danger of becoming ineffective. So being effective was not a guarantee simply because they're a Christian. And in that section, Peter warns them, don't become too nearsighted, all right? Don't forget where you've come from. Don't forget the gospel, which Paul in Ephesians has just spent three chapters reiterating. And uh, Peter also mentioned, don't forget where you're going. Don't forget your future hope. Don't forget what we're living for. Don't forget what you're ultimately called to. All right? So whenever you're walking, are you looking backwards when you walk? Or are you fixing your eyes on where you're striving to go? So we're to walk in a manner worthy, fixing our eyes onto ultimately what that prize is, what we're seeking to strive for and attain. In fact, even in Ephesians 2.11 I, I saw this, uh, this principle reiterated once again in Ephesians 2.11. It says, therefore, remember, all right, reflect, don't forget where you've come from. Remember, ultimately, that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. And what's interesting here is in Ephesians he's dealing with a real unity issue. Because he's dealing with the unity between the Gentiles and the Jewish believers, alright? And so we're dealing with a a scenario, a real crisis, a real issue. And he's telling them, if you want to walk through this in unity, you're going to have to remember. Okay, you're going to have to remember why Christ came, why died on the cross, and how he's made you new from that component. So one of the challenges about this calling, though, is that it guarantees suffering all right we talked about being willing to suffer for unity and we see here paul is writing this letter from prison many of us have heard from his other epistles and writings that he's been stoned he's been whipped he's been beaten he's been shipwrecked he has suffered to a great extent all right what makes paul willing to suffer for the sake of unity and this is uh, i was actually thinking You know, we've we've all heard the song Amazing Grace many times. In fact, you could reflect right now on the words that go through that song, all right, as he emphasizes the value of grace and how precious that grace was. And sometimes when I think of grace applied in the life of someone who's been wounded, who's been hurt, all right, who has suffered, and yet I don't see them, staying down on the ground and taking the ultimate position of a victim. Because ultimately what I see is that in their suffering, they don't let their circumstances ultimately define every element of who they are. What they allow to define them is the grace of God. Okay? That amazing grace that transformed the author who wrote the song That transformed the life of Paul. We know Paul's testimony, right? Talk about a miraculous transformation. We know Peter. We know his timid nature. His ability to try to jump into action and then overcome it and back out. You know? But that's not the Peter we see later on leading uh, the Christian church. And so, willing to suffer because of this grace. I want you to take a minute to reflect in your own life. All right? How motivational is the grace of the gospel to you? What are you ultimately willing to suffer because of the grace that has been given to you? See, what I have noticed is that there is no lack in the grace that God has given out. In fact, earlier on in Ephesians, it talks about lavish grace. That grace is given to us, that God has given grace to us lavishly. It talks about rich grace. There are so many metaphors to describe the type of grace that God has given to us in Ephesians here, okay? So there's nothing lacking in the grace that God has to offer all of us to the gospel. What is lacking is my true understanding and appreciation of that grace. All right? If I don't feel ultimately motivated by grace, then maybe I don't really know What kind of grace the gospel is really talking about that would drive a man like Paul to give up everything for the sake of Christ. You know, I have to reflect in my own life. It doesn't take very much to happen in my day or my week for me to start to, I'm just throwing in the towel. You know, like it's Monday. And if this is the way the rest of the week is going to be, I'm just going to check out, you know, because this is too hard. And that's just because I didn't get a good night's rest. And I get to sleep on a nice, you know, nice, nice mattress, and I have three pillows. Okay, so it's like I had all the potential for a good night's sleep. My son woke up. I didn't get stoned. I didn't get really persecuted. He just interrupted my sleep, and I'm I already feel like I just can't handle life anymore. Okay, <laughs> or little things like that, right? Something doesn't go the way we planned at work. You wake up, and, and 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 maybe you wake up in a good mood, but then your spouse isn't in a good mood, and you're just well. <laughs> what's worth putting the effort forth to maintain the unity of the spirit when my spouse won't even put forth the effort to keep unity for the first five minutes of the day? All right? Or the children start to fight. You know, you arrive home, you've been working hard, and you, and you get home, or the kids come back from school, and you're so excited to see one another. We're so excited that we're finally together as a family. And what happens? You step inside that door, the children enter your home, and there's fight. There's quarrels. And, and, and we lose it. It's so easy for us to lose sight of that grace that sustains the unity, not because we feel like our circumstances are unified. See, and that's that's the challenge here: the unity and the grace that God gives us is an internal peace that is completed in Christ alone, not based upon my circumstances. It's not dependent upon my spouse. It's not dependent upon my children. It's not dependent upon my pastor. He abandoned me this week. All right? <laughs> I had to rely upon the grace of God to survive. You know? uh, and and that's, that's a key element here. Okay? We all have been given the same measure of grace that the apostles received, that anyone's received. All right? Billy Graham received the same measure of grace that each and every single one of us have received. So, if you don't feel the rich motivation by the grace, I want to challenge you to better understand why did Paul feel it? Why was Paul so motivated by this grace? And how can I learn more about this rich grace that can also drive me forward, especially in the presence of suffering? Because while on earth we know that we will face suffering, in fact, I found as I reflect over this concept of suffering and grace, I started seeing some parallels in scriptures. I saw that frequently, when striving for unity, we see that unity addresses our desires and our fears. All right? And I want to, this is a little bit more abstract from this passage, but I think we're going to see this bigger principle through scripture. Uh, and, 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 and that these come together uh, in a dynamic that builds onto this concept of unity. And when I have this understanding, I'm not so uh, tripped up when I'm facing suffering or trials and striving for unity. I'm trying to keep unity, and yet I'm experiencing suffering. And we sometimes wonder, why is that? Why do these two things go together? And, and, and we're going to see that there's an element that God wove these two components together even before the fall uh, and especially early on. In fact, if we, uh, if we went back to the fall, uh, we would see these two components there. Uh, we would see our greatest desires for intimate fellowship present there. And we would also see in Genesis our greatest fear of separation from that intimate fellowship. All right? What do we see play out in Genesis 2? We see the creation of man and woman. We see God saying, oh man... Is there alone? It is it not good for man to be alone? So he created woman. Alright? He created community. Why did he do that? Well, because he's a God of community. He is a God of three persons in one. We are made in his image. Therefore, we are to live united in community by design. But our, our need for that sense of community and unity isn't ultimately met in each other's relationship, our external relationships. It's ultimately ultimately meant and satisfied in the unity we experience with God himself, which we'll look at in a few minutes. All right? But building on this basis, all right? So the ultimate uh, desire for fellowship here, I believe by design, was always meant for communion with Christ and with God, not each other ultimately. But I also believe that the greatest fear then is the reverse of that. All right? And this is where we see unity brings the greatest fear and our greatest desires into one package. Think about this. If something you greatly desire becomes threatened, what emotion do you experience? Right? You get fearful. All right? If someone threatens to take the last slice of pizza, you know, I become fearful. You know, if someone threatens to take something I desire, I become fearful. Fearful, okay? And yet, I believe that is by design. Though I misapply it frequently and I don't completely understand the emotions I'm experiencing, I believe that God ultimately designed our desires and fears to be connected in Him. Have you ever noticed how frequently in the Psalms and the Proverbs it talks about the fear of the Lord? In fact, if you looked at some of those references throughout the Psalms, we don't have time to get into all of them right now, but if you looked at some of those references in the Psalms, you would see that ultimately these two components are brought together. Our desires can be united with our fears. The Psalms talk, Psalm 31 and a number of the other Psalms talk about how the fear of the Lord brings joy. Talks about the fear of the Lord in wisdom. The fear of the Lord fulfilling us, completing us. And why is that? Because the fear of the Lord, when I properly put my fears in order, and I fear God above all else, then I cling to him. I hold on to him. I see him as the only source and means to ultimately satisfy and meet my every need and desire. And then I feel secure, I feel safe, and I feel right in fellowship with God. Okay? So you start to see this dynamic in a relational practical play To where my fear Properly placed in God Ultimately helps to secure My ultimate desire To be fully known To be fully accepted And to be in intimate relationship And fellowship with God himself I think of many of these characters in scriptures Who went through severe suffering And while they're going through severe suffering Had such peace Do you know how important peace is For the element of unity You know how hard it is to have unity When you don't have peace Okay, And so this element Of being secure in their relationship with God And turning to him And respecting him And honoring him above all else Met all of those needs inside of them So that they could be at peace Regardless of their circumstances And and that's a key element That we're going to have to put to practice if we're ultimately going to want to see unity demonstrated in the church. And I believe that in the rest of Ephesians 4, when we look at that, and we're just going to go through it somewhat quickly, is, is a strategy, is a plan ultimately for God's mission for unity in the church. Okay, And so as we look at this, I, I saw it broken down into three categories. All right? And, you, and you, might, you might be wondering right now, wait a minute Jeremy, You just spent like 20 minutes on one verse. And now we're about to take on 30, 31 verses. You know, at this rate, you should be starting to get fearful. You know? (laughs) But let me assure you, it's not going to be the same ratio. Okay? Um, But what I found in the rest of the chapter is actually this very methodical plan. All right? That's broken down into stages that is really helpful. In fact, I've been trying to do what we call strategic planning with foundations over the past few months. And I've evaluated a lot of tools, a lot of Christian tools for how to set up your ministry, you know, to, to have a, a biblical strategic plan and mission and how to make everything you do to function through that. I'm thinking like I need to develop a strategic plan for my family, you know, and I need to have a mission a mission purpose or mission statement for my family. I, I just saw the value of unifying things through this plan. And as I was reading through Ephesians 4, I saw, wow, Paul has structure similar to the number of those resources and programs I was viewing. And he went in an order that made sense to those resources that I looked at. In fact, I broke it down into these three categories. Ultimately, started off with values. We see in the first uh, six verses or so, Values that that Paul outlines that drive ultimately unity. These are the parameters. All right. This is what determines what does unify and what does not unify. This is what we ought to pursue. This is what we are not to pursue. So he lays these these general values first that are going to drive the rest of the plan, and then he heads into the strategy element that builds towards unity in verses seven through sixteen. And then finally he concludes with a plan. So you have to have a strategy. Plan is the implementation phase. I like to jump straight to the plan. Most people just, want, just tell me what to do. All right, What do we have to do? Rarely do we take time to really reflect and think about the values that we want to demonstrate through this. Up here we have values demonstrated at the front of our church. These are values That should drive the decision making process in the church. Values that we took from scripture. And then you take those values and you develop a strategy. I want to read some of these values. uh, And and, and read through some of the strategy with you. uh, As as we think about them. We heard them read earlier this morning. Picking up in verse 2 it says. With all humility and gentleness. With patience. Bearing with one another in love. Do you see how those values Would promote unity. All right, with all humility, patience, bearing with one another, in love. So he outlines these specific values for demonstrating unity. If you're finding it difficult to find unity in yourself, in your relationships, I'd encourage you to take time to really reflect on these values, these principles. Uh, Humility is frequently elevated as the foundational virtue. All right, the Greeks saw it that way. We see it. emphasized in scripture Philippians 2 right the mindset of 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 Christ we see it demonstrated in other lists as well but really what we we're looking to capture in this context is that humility should be driven by an accurate perspective of who God is God is great God is all-powerful God is good and then who I am all right and when I see that contrast between who God is and who I am I'm humbled when I'm humbled I I Put myself in a position to be cooperative, to be collaborative. I don't think that my way is automatically the best way or the or the only way. I'm willing to talk with each other. I'm willing to explore in scripture. And, and, and work with each other in this process. So unity, that, that humility component, is a critical element for unity. And then once you've laid that foundation, these other aspects of patience and long-suffering, well, that's critical to making it through the process of maintaining unity in those principles and values. And ultimately, we see it saturated in love. And one of the key, key elements here when we're looking at the values that was really encouraging are those verses that, that pick up in, in, in verse 4, we see where there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Think about that. The emphasis on one, all right? And it's bringing it back to the character of God. Not, not bringing it back to my skills and ability to maintain unity, it's not based upon my skills. It's based upon the character of God. That God is one. And when we're willing to put ourselves under Christ as our head, then he can also unify us together as one. And so he lays out these values. He is one. Here are values that support my unity and, and, and my church family. And then he goes on with his strategy. It really starts to off in verse 7. It says, But grace was given. To each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So we see grace come up once again. Grace is the motivating factor. Grace is the empowering factor for us to walk in this manner that we are called. And and the strategy here is that each one of us are going to be given gifts. Alright? We're going to be given gifts in order to encourage and support the growth of unity In the body. And it goes on uh, through a number of these verses. To highlight specific gifts. I'm not going to go into detail about the specific gifts. But understand that every single one of us. Do not have the same gift. Alright. So each of us have a unique element. To contribute uh, to the process. That we have to consider. uh, And and uncover. What God's role. What his gifting for us. And how we're to contribute to the unity uh, for the church. In verse 12 it picks up and it says that these gifts are used to equip the saints for the work of the ministry to build up the body of Christ. All right, So that strategy ultimately is seeking to build toward unity, to build the body towards unity. How am I using my gifts and abilities to build the body towards unity? And ultimately what we'll look at more uh, next time is to build the body to unity through maturing them in Christ, uh, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, but by human cunningness or by craftiness and deceitful schemes. And it's this interesting strategy element that he throws in here in verse 15. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. All right, so it's bringing it together. One of the key elements of strategy is that we don't compromise on truth, but we never compromise on love either. I frequently say biblical truth always includes love and biblical love always includes truth. You never compromise either. Of them. So he's saying this strategy does not compromise on truth or love. We saw that emphasizing the values. And you see this continual theme of, of, of the elements reoccurring. The values you see are woven into the strategy and, and, and ultimately implemented in the plan. And so as you progress, we see, and we didn't read through this passage uh, this morning, and this passage is really uh, the verses 17 and on. That's really going to be what we launch into the next time I speak with you. Is that the plan to accomplish this unity is ultimately wrapped up in our new life in Christ? And what we're going to see in these passages, uh, in verse 17 through 32, but also in other passages that we'll look at next time, is that what, what this process brings into place, the walking in the manner of worthy, uh, of, of the, to walk in a worthy manner of the calling is that these steps, these processes include the sanctification of our bodies to, the pro, to building up into maturity uh, under Christ, unifying the body. And so I encourage you in preparation for the next time I share, or, or if you have time uh, to review through Ephesians, to, to read through these verses, and, and to come prepared next time in October to ultimately dive into this. And what we're going to look at is parallel passages that highlight These principles, this plan that we are to play, there's redundancy throughout scripture that will highlight these plans that we are uh, to ultimately follow through and implement for unity. So my challenge to you is, will you accept your calling to join God's mission for unity in his church? Will you walk worthy, starting today, in this moment, and continually commit? It's not a one-time decision. Minute by minute, continue to commit to maintain walking in a manner worthy of calling to maintain the aspect of practicing humility and patience and long suffering with each other to promote unity in fact it said eager to maintain unity we saw earlier on okay frequently when I come into a conflict I'm eager but in the wrong way I'm eager simply to like bring the peace like just make it happen but the eager here is come into it eager to practice God's truth and to be patient with them in that process, not just to bring a quick resolution, but to be willing to walk with people to the extent that's necessary to arrive at that point of unity. So, why don't we close our our um, our heads or close our eyes and bow our heads as we reflect upon this, and uh, and consider the rest of this week.